Hello. We want to thank you for joining our Living Messiah family by downloading this podcast. We hope it blesses you and enriches your life. We also want to encourage you, uh, if you can, and if your heart is so moved, to support this ministry by going on our website, livingmessiah.com, and donating to help us to put these podcasts in every nation, every place, so we can bring these messages to change lives, to help people grow in the Word of God. Once again, thank you so much for being part of our family. Shalom. Father, thank you for the reading of your word. We ask again that you would open our eyes and ears, and most of all, open our hearts. Because, Father, we, we want your word to change us inwardly so that we're not just doing it because we're afraid of you. We're not doing the things you've asked because uh, of, of we want blessings or what, whatever. We want to be able to do them, Father, because we really desire to please you. We have a desire to do these things from within us, that it has really become part of our character, that we've been changed from within. So Father, let those words of yours sink into us and make that change within each of us, both here and online. In your son Yahushua's name we ask, amen. Okay, uh, I, got a, I got a note from Telegram that Polly said she's got the note covered for the door, so she'll do that. So it Nobody here has to do that, so thank you. So what are we going to talk about today? So in two days, the appearing of us before the Almighty on Yom Kippur, and He is appearing to us for forgiveness, redemption, and the kingdom. The book, our name's written in the book, so it is about us appearing before Him and Him appearing to us. Now, as we've been learning, can we just approach God any way we want? Can we just approach Him any way we want to approach Him? No. And so, what evokes that wonderful favor and grace from when we approach Him on Yom Kippur, we're approaching Him the way that He asked us to approach, and then He appears before us with that mercy, grace, and loving kindness that he's, his adjective character traits sh- so show. So we're going to talk about those things. We're also going to talk about burden, because you saw the, the word burden throughout the Torah portion. So that's kind of where we're going. So at first sight, the laws contained in this section have little relation to each other. They deal with persons excluded from the camp because they are ritually impure with priests receiving offerings from a confessed robber. So this is a good chance if you have questions about why people are asked to not be in the camp, why God wants them to leave the camp for periods of time, ask questions. This is time to raise your hand and uh, comment or ask questions. This is, this is a good time. So let's dig into five one. Yahweh spoke to Moshe saying, Command the children of Israel, Send out of the camp every leper and everyone who has a discharge, everyone who he becomes defiled. So, removal of unclean persons out of the camp, as Yahuwah, the Holy One, dwelt in the midst of the camp of his people. Those who were affected with the uncleanness of leprosy, of a diseased flux or of menstruation, and those who had become unclean through touching a corpse, whether male or female, were to be removed out of the camp, that they might not defile it, by their uncleanness. The command of of Elohim to remove these persons out of the camp was carried out at once by the nation. 
and even in Canaan it was so far observed that lepers at any rate were placed in special pest houses outside the cities. So one may see in Numbers 5-2 a series of allusions. The words removed from the camp allude to Israel's exile. So think about also God, his, his, his land of Israel, the land of Canaan, this land that he chose for himself, when the nation itself defiled it and became defiled themselves, what did he do? He removed them out of his camp. He got them out of it. When the Canaanites had defiled it to a certain point, he said, the land is going to vomit you out. He removed the Canaanites out because of their wickedness. And so, this exile to be imposed, eruption alludes to idolatry, discharge to immorality, defiled by a corpse, the shedding of blood that defiles the land. For these transgressions, the temple was destroyed. If you have comments or questions, raise your hand. The mic will make its way to you. So, wrong toward a fellow human being in verse 6. It says, speak to the children of Israel when a man or woman commits a sin that men commit in trespass against Yahuwah, and that being is guilty. So it is possible to sin against God without sinning against man, but all sins against man are sins against God. Psalm 51.4 says, Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So the psalmist is declaring only, he's stating only against God. In other words, he's saying, I have not sinned against man. And you see many times that men will say, if there's anyone here that has claimed that I have sinned against them, please come forward. And so it's very important that we watch how we treat our fellow beings as well as how we act in regard to our Most High. 5.10 Each one shall keep his holy donations. Whatever anyone gives to the priest shall be his. Fools believe that the money that they have lying in their coffers is theirs while the money they give away to charity is theirs no longer. Actually, quite the reverse is true. Only those possessions that are given away for sacred purposes remain one's property. Each shall retain his sacred donations, literally referring to the priests. But those possessions that people greedily amass for themselves are not theirs at all. Such gains will not remain with them for longer than fleeting, a fleeting moment. How many of you know and you've said, everything that God gives me is from His, from Him it is His. It's a blessing to me. And I am a steward of everything that He has given me. Amen. So when we're giving and tithing and donating, it's really not ours, is it? So, hallelujah. Numbers 5.5. 5. And Yahweh spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, uh, when a man commits any sin that uh, men committed in a trespass against Yahuwah, and that being is guilty, then they shall confess their sin which they have done, and he shall restore his guilt in its principle plus one-fifth of it. So in this commentary, it says, Restitution in case of a trespass, no crime against the property of a neighbor, was to remain without expiation in the congregation of Israel which was encamped or dwelt around the sanctuary of Yahuwah. And the wrong committed was not to remain without restitution 
because such crimes involved unfaithfulness. The word ma'al, see Leviticus 5.15, towards Yahuwah. So if a man or woman do one of the sins of men to commit unfaithfulness, uh, unfaithfulness against Yahuwah, and the same soul has incurred guilt, they shall confess their sin which they have done. And the doer shall recompense his debt according to his sum. The word here is berosho, uh, also in 524. And our word here is mikal chatot chadam. One of these sins occurring among men, not a sin against man. Okay? If you have comments, questions, raise your hand. So the meaning is a sin with which a ma'al was committed against Yahuwah, or one of the acts described in, in Leviticus 5, 21 and 22, by which injury was done to the property of a neighbor, whereby a man brought a debt upon himself for the wiping out of which a material restitution of the other property was prescribed. A perfect example. The, the man accidentally kills his neighbor ox. What's he supposed to do? He's supposed to restore that man's ox. That's restitution. He's going to bring restitution for what he committed uh, this act against. He's going to restore that man's ox, okay? Uh, so it says, to guard against that disturbance of fellowship and peace in the congregation, which would arise from such trespasses as these, the law already given in Leviticus 5.20 is here renewed and supplemented by the additional stipulation that if the man who had been unjustly deprived of some of his property had no redeemer to whom restitution could be made for the debt, the compensation should be paid to Yahuwah for the priest. The goel, or redeemer, was the nearest relative upon whom the obligation rested to redeem a person who had fallen into slavery through poverty. Questions or comments? Okay. So the allusion to the Goel in this connection presupposes that the injured person was no longer alive. To this there appended, in verse 9 and 10, the directions which are substantially connected with this, that every heave offering, terumah, in Leviticus 2.9, in the holy gifts of the children of Israel, which they presented to the priests, was to belong to him, the priest, and also all the holy gifts which were brought by different individuals. The reference is not to literal sacrifices or gifts intended for the altar, but to dedicatory offerings, first fruits, and such like. With regard to every man's holy gifts, to him the priest shall be holy." What any man gives to the priest shall belong to him, and the second clause serves to explain and confirm the first as far with regard to the code. So if you have any questions about that, raise your hand. We'll try to make uh, understanding. So what a man brings to the priest, it's whose? Let's see if everybody understands. Whose is it? The priest. Yes. If you bring the offering to the priest, the offering is the priest. The priest gets to eat it. He does what he wants to. It's, it's his offering. I remember at Sukkot one time, our uh, brother who was there, he had slaughtered uh, an animal, and he brought me a piece of uh, the shoulder, which was traditionally given to the elder or the, the, the priest at the time. And he said, this is your gift from this slaughtering, and it was mine to do whatever I wanted to do with it. So it was very 
He was following protocol, what Scripture said to do, so it was awesome. We also got to see how he slaughtered the animal, you know, the way it was done. A lot of people had never seen it. It was, uh, it was an amazing thing to see. So anyhow, hopefully that covered. If you have questions, we can talk about it after. Numbers 4.23 says, From 30 years old and to 50 years old, you shall list them all who can come to duty to do service in the tent. So the priests have a service from 30 to 50, but the men of war have a service from 20 to 60, right? So there's a little extra time for the men of war. The men that are doing service in the tabernacle and all that, there's a 30 to 50. Is it interesting to you to note that the time that the Messiah began his service was what? 30. Very interesting, isn't it? Again, I feel that God is following protocol, bringing Yeshua into service at the time he was supposed to come into service. Not a minute before, right at the time he was supposed to come in. So the interesting thing about this word service is the word savah, or what we'd say seba, which how many of you heard it's Yahweh Zevaot, right? So this word zavah is to wage war, to muster an army, to serve and worship. And I want to hone in on this, to serve and worship. So when the people are coming and the men, and the men are doing the service to God, they are performing worship. All these things that they are doing, they are performing worship. And so what we have to remember is when we are doing the things that God has asked us to do, they were asked to serve. That's their worship. God asked you to come on Shabbat. That's your worship. When he asks you to come to Yom Kippur, you're showing up to worship God because that's your service. When we come for Sukkot, get ready to worship because that's what you've been asked to do is worship God, because that's your service. That's what you've been called to do. And some people say, and I know pastors and churches that they look at what they've been called to do as a burden. And we're going to get into the word burden because some of these verses within our context today talks about they were carrying a burden. But some people that are serving look at what they're doing as a burden and can't wait to get out. Some people are only in it for the monetary provisions. But I'm here to say to you that all that we're doing here, including myself, this is service and worship. Worship to the Most High. Yes. I was wondering when somebody was going to get involved. <clears throat> so I have a question. Um, when it talks about a burden, um, I was looking at the numbers and, um, for instance, the Goshenites. Uh, there's like 2,600 and some of them. And I can't imagine it takes that many people to build and take down the tenant meeting. So, like, what was the rotation for something like that? Where people only did it maybe a couple times a year because the rotation was so large? Because, um, for instance, the Goshenites was just in charge of the coverings and the cords and stuff. And then other um, clans were charged with other things. So what was the rotation process process? Well, like? and you know, wait, we have some hands up. Maybe someone will answer it before I get to it. So So touching on what he was saying, 
it was every time the tabernacle was to be moved is when this took place. Yeah. And if we know from the Torah that the, the journey through the wilderness was 42 locations, obviously 42 times this took place. And how did they know when, when they were supposed to take it up? Because the Lord would rise up. And, when the cloud, when yeah. the cloud went on the move. <laughs> yeah. look, look, there it goes. I guess we better start tearing down. It's time to move. Uh, and I, I would imagine, Ralphie, Bob, you guys are, have studied the tabernacle and stuff way more than I have. So I would imagine, I mean, I know that everything was by order. I mean, we think the military is in order. This was, this was very, very much an order. And everybody knew exactly what they were to do and when they were supposed to do it. God didn't leave anyone uninstructed in, when he regarded his sanctuary. And so I wouldn't be surprised if there was a, just like the priests had a rotation, that there might have been a rotation for the people actually carrying uh, the, the instruments. You know, because like you said, there's, there's a lot of people here. I mean, there's a lot of folks. And I wouldn't imagine it would take, I forget the number, 12,000 people to, because, you know, you got three different groups of, of Levites uh, that are responsible for, for this. And say there's 12,000 each one, it doesn't take, you know, 50,000 people to, to tear it down. And it would be, might be confusing. So there very well could have been a rotation in it. Very good question. Hadn't, hadn't looked at that. But, yeah, it doesn't mean that, you know, it would have, would have, could have imposed a, a significant issue had not God been the one being the, the what does it say, the, the Lord of hosts, the, the one who is marshalling the, 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 the group. He's the one that's, that's mustering his people. So, yeah, he definitely would have been doing that. If you have a comment about it, you can come back a little later, but good question. So it says, they will confess their sin, which they have done, and they will restore their guilt. And so this guilt or guilt offering is a sham. The most frequent meaning of the word is guilt offering, and he shall bring his trespass or guilt offering to Yahuwah for his sin, which he has sinned. This specialized kind of sin offering was to be offered when someone had been denied what was due him. So someone feels like they've been denied, they bring a, a sham because the people should be ashamed. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> They're going to bring in a sham offering. The valued amount defrauded was to be repaid plus 20%. Brother Mark, what's wrong with, what about that 10% stuff? No, God says you're going to bring the defrauded individual plus 20. Wow. Ritual infractions and periods of leprosy and defilement took from God a commodity of service rightfully belonging to him. So do you, I want you to understand that statement. So ritual infractions and periods of leprosy and defilement took from God a commodity or service or worship rightfully belonging to him. In other words, if there was a priest who was supposed to uh, perform duty, perform service, and he would be, had become defiled some way and couldn't do it, this is robbing God of the service that was rightfully God's because the man had been sanctioned and called to perform that duty. I never really looked at it that way until I read this commentary that God expects us. So in other words, 
When the New Testament says, do not forsake the assembling of the brethren, and God's expecting us to show up and serve and worship, God's missing on something that belonged to him if we're not there. Now, I understand there's things that come up. I'm just wanting to show you, I hadn't thought of it that way, that if we don't show up, if we don't do the service that he's asked us to do, and God's expecting it, he's called you to do it. He's called you. He knocked on your door and said, hey, guess what? I'm going to share you my Torah. I'm going to let you know my feast. My point is, is there obligation for us once we know the instructions? Yes, there is. There's obligations. When a man gets married to a woman and they both come into an agreement and there's this ketubah, there's this arrangement, they both understand there's obligations to this covenant. You're going to do your part and I'm going to do my part. If you fail to perform that part of that obligation, have you defrauded your loved one? I would say you have. If a person commits adultery against the other, have they defrauded them? Yes, they have. If they've been unfaithful in any way, have they defrauded their loved one? Yes, they have. Because they were obligated to do the otherwise. Okay. Comments, questions, raise your hand. So, our Greek version of this, halesmos, it's, to, it's this merciful, it signifies an expiation, a means whereby sin is covered and remitted. It is used in the New Testament of Messiah himself as the propitiation in John 1, 1 John 2, 2 and 4, 10, signifying that he himself through the, his sacrifice of his death is the personal means by whom God shows mercy to the sinner who believes in him as the one provided. They believe that he's the one that God provided because God said through the Tanakh, through the Old Testament, I'm going to provide one. He told Abraham, that redeemer is going to come from your loins. He's going to be the redeemer that mankind has been looking for. And so we believe that he's the one that God provided. In the former passage, he is described as the sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The italicized edition in the King James, the sins of, gives a wrong interpretation. What is indicated is that provision is made for the whole world so that no one is, by divine predetermination, excluded from the scope of God's mercy. The efficacy of the sacrifice, however, is made actual for those who believe, those who decide to walk in what God asks them to do. Because remember, believe is not mental gymnastics. Believing is something you're walking and doing. It's action. Keeping the commands. So the fact that God sent His Son to be the sacrifice for us is shown to be the great expression of God's love towards man. And the reason why everyone who is a believer and a follower of God Almighty should love one another as He loved us. And let me tell you something. Congregations across America are disintegrating. They're disintegrating. What did the, what did the Scripture teach us would happen in the days, in the end? Love would what? Grow cold. Now the church might think that love means this 
heartfelt love that's just something that's only here, but the love that God's talking about is what you do, the love that's expressed, the love in action. Now, let's just think about this. Since we're talking about defrauding God of service and worship, as a community, if we do not love our brother, as it says in Leviticus to do, as we would love ourselves, are we defrauding our fellow brother from what is expected of us to do? Yes. When you say the congregations are disintegrating all across you know, the world, is that a, the church or is that the Messianic Torah observant people? I, I'm going to here to tell you that Messianic congregations also are disintegrating. And it's because of this this is a bit, I keep teaching about this. This is a big part of disintegration. People talk about someone else behind the back. They talk about this and that. And there could be people in the congregation that are going to force the other person to be exactly like them. You've got to look exactly like me, brother. If you don't, you're just not, you're just not, you're not in. We have to realize that God's working on each individual. We have to wait for God. God's work will be completed if we let God do it. If we step in and try to be God and do the work and try to force something on them that God knew they weren't even ready for it yet. I mean, this congregation never says to anybody that you've got to be wearing tzitzit. Never. You, none of you have ever heard me say that to you, and I hope you've never heard anyone from leadership. But you know what? At some point, if you didn't come in the first time with it, at some point they end up coming on. Why? Because he did the work. He made you realize that this is what you need to be doing. Right? And so if congregations would stop trying to be God and just live like God in deed, because it's love. It's love, it's love, is love. And so let me ask you this, because I'm going to get to this in a minute. Polly and I have been reading Blood Covenant and Salt Covenant. And blood and salt covenant are speaking about the same thing. That God is wanting to bring his life, the blood, into you, the life into you. If God's life is in you, then your character and the way you treat everybody else should be exemplified by the way Messiah did. Back in Christ's day, oh, that brother over there, he's not clean. But God showed them through the sheets that don't call anyone unclean. Love him. Love him. This is hard for people to do. I mean, we see it all over. But if we can control our mouth and our tongue, and we can get love walking out in us to others, it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be all right. Parents. Let me ask you a question. If you can get your children loving their other siblings, is everything going to be all right? <laughs> but that's the very thing that happens in the congregation at home. A child is speaking against the other child, and they're, they're combating one another over issues. This is what happens in a bigger capacity. And I say to my children, I'll say to you, that, I mean, I can discipline my kids till the cows come home. 
But we need, I need, and we need for it to be in here and wanting to do it, not just because there's consequences or we need to, I want to love you. I want to treat you right. I want to, to, to treat you as Messiah would treat you. You know, the old thing that people used to say, what would Jesus do? We should be saying, what would Messiah do? What does the Word of God tell us? How should I act? Yes. I just find it quite interesting that um, the root of leper is, you know, <laughs> talking. talking. And what was the first thing that it said? Set the lepers outside the camp. Yes. Yeah. So. And I, I have to say this to you, that you should all be guarding against that. If someone comes to you doing this, about another believer, another, another person in our community, you should say, we should say, look, I don't want to hear another word. Go and talk to that person that you have an issue with. I'm walking away. Because if you walk away, you are preventing the destruction of fellowship. And you're teaching the other person the protocol of what to do. Yes. Yeah, I have a good friend who was viciously attacked um, by words, lies, by his own family. And um, it painted a really bad picture of him. And uh, he is, I don't believe he's a believer, but his family are believers. And they did this to him. And um, he came to, I was working, so I wasn't there, but he came to our, our place for um, just to for advice. But here's a scripture here, Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Uh, the tongue can be used as a weapon to harm and destroy or as a tool to build and heal. But, you know, who's the, I mean, your tongue could kill people because it could drive them away, but also it's killing you because... I mean, <laughs> something pouring out of you that is, is bitter water pouring out of what should be sweet water. Because you can't have bitter and sweet pouring out of the same. <laughs> what do they call it? Huh? Just, yeah. You can't have you know, out of the book. It's got to be one or the other. That's why it says don't be lukewarm. Be one or the other. Either be totally bitter or be sweet. But don't be flip-flopping around and sometimes you're sweet, sometimes you're bitter. Be sweet all the time. Yes. When we're speaking about the speaking of others, they say that the eyes are the window to the soul. Ooh. And the tongue is the quill to the heart. <laughs> so when you're speaking, it's a deeper problem. It's coming from your heart. And that's where we need to address it. It's going deeper. So maybe the tongue is directly connected to the heart. It's like it's speaking evil in Heart's getting a little pull on it. Wow. Yes. So I think in the, uh, once regards to the 144,000 and the mixed multitude, which we know is a future event, there is no guile in their mouths, right? Ooh. So why don't we start practicing wow. that now? Well, based on that, maybe that really is a literal number and there really is only 144,000 that, <laughs> that literally have no, and that's, Scary thought, is it not? Uh, how much we need to work on our mouth. Good word. Numbers 424, 
also says, this is the service, the worship of the clans of the Gershonites in worship and bearing burdens. Yes, go ahead. Just, just reading uh, 1 Corinthians 13 where Ashua has set up an example of what love is. Reading, if I speak with the tongue of men and of messengers, but do not have love, I have becoming a sounding brass and a clanging symbol. Yeah. In other words, it's so easy to say, I love you, I forgive you, like that. <laughs> Those are words, but that has a, there has to be an action behind yep. that. Yep. Uh, it's not so much of the words you say, it's how you present yourself to the other person. Let me and see. All humility, yeah. you know, Show me some action in it. Don't I've let been, it be just. I've been guilty a lot of this, you know, holding grudges and everything else like that. But that's not what. Joe, I, you're not the only one. And that's okay? not what. That's not what our Savior wants yeah. us to do. He wants us to uh, that. And I was also thinking, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Yep. And if a person's heart is right before his Savior, then the actions that we express to one another is going to be Him. Amen. So I want to talk about this word burden for a minute. The word burden is massah, load. So this word is one of the many fascinating words in Hebrew, appearing about 60 times. Its basic meaning in about half of those occurrences is the literal idea of carrying a burden, as would a donkey in the first occurrence in Exodus 23, or other animal. Another noted use refers to various Levite clans who were given the responsibility of carrying parts of the tabernacle. I have a question for you before we go to the next slide. Are you carrying burdens that you need to let go? We're in the season that burdens should be released. And we're going to talk about other variations of what this burden means, but I want to encourage you that if there's a burden in your heart, something that's in your being that's a burden against anyone. This is the time, we're in the season, to make those right. And sometimes we're waiting on the other person to do it. And I would say to you that it's in your heart and mind, you need to be going to the other person. Because they may never realize. To them, they may never think that they did anything wrong. But you're thinking they had major errors. But for whatever reason, they don't think it. And if you wait for them, it will never happen. The enemy does not want that restitution to happen, but God says, I want you to go and make it right. If you're carrying a burden, it's time to release it. Yes. The three tribes that are carrying the items, so all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. Yes. If you write across the top of your paper three columns, and in the first column you put Merari, in the middle column, you put Kehot, or Kehoth, and in the right column, you put Gershon. When you look at those three, you have Merari means bitterness. Gershon on the right means a stranger there. In the middle, you have Kehot, which means assembly. It comes from the root word Kahal. So that's for assembly. That's us. Merari carries the pillars, the beams, the sockets, the heavy stuff. Gershon, a stranger there, carries the coverings, the screens, and the curtains. When I say they carry, they don't actually carry it. They're 
oxen on wagons carry it. Whereas Quixote in the middle carries the veil and the furniture, the precious things that are inside. The two on the out carry the covering and the structure. So Quixote carries the precious. Is Quixote over with Ephraim? Is that where he's at in the location? Which, which group? I'm not is sure. He on the, is he on the west? I'd have to go back and look. Okay. East. East? What? East is Aaron, and, and, and so I'm wondering the, the direction, which one is, because that's, I love what you're saying, because, you know, the Merari's carrying the wood, which wood got thrown in to make the water bitter. Mm -hmm. uh, that's probably not by coincidence. Yeah. yeah. So the, the two on the outside, the ones carrying the pillar and the coverings, it takes no effort from them. The one in the middle is carrying it on staves, which requires their effort. When you look at what their names mean, besides the bitterness, the assembly, and the stranger, they say that Merari represents power, and Gershon represents loving kindness. When you're a parent, you don't want to, I'm going to use the word rule, your children with too much power, you're like a dictator, and you don't want to give them too much loving kindness because then you're letting them do whatever they want. So it takes a balance, and the balance is in the middle, which Quixote, they say, is Tiferet. So you got Gavura for power under Merari, Keset for loving kindness, and Tiferet in the middle for beauty. Beauty? Beauty. When you look deeper into that Tiferet, you have the Tav, Fe, Alifresh, Tav, the root word, or the middle word, is the Pe, Aleph, Resh, Pe'er, which means turban, and it comes from Exodus. And in Exodus 28.2, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for the glory and beauty, the Tiferet. So it's all a symbol to describe the high priest, beauty. So again, you have the bitterness, you have the stranger, and in the middle, you have the kahal, which is us, which is the beauty, which is a symbol of the high priest. So it's all a balance in how we work and walk this out. We carry the precious things if we are to be the high priest of the tabernacle. And it's on our shoulders. And we are the strangers that must get rid of the bitterness mm -hmm. in order to come into that sweet balance in the middle. Amen. Yes. Uh, looking at this, uh, so the, the Levites were set apart to do this, this work. And um, to parallel that, we're set apart as well, right? Each and every single one of us. And you had the, the priests who were um, inside doing the work in the tabernacle. To parallel with today, we have the teachers and the, um, the elders and so forth. You know, that's their, what they're doing as far as their burden or their, their, their service. But the rest of us, uh, we... Um, are set apart as well and then it's like we have work you know it may not be like officially a part of like living messiah or whatever you know working officially for them but we have a big responsibility as far as building up um, building up the house you know sometimes I look around I see people sweep in and then we have like Brian in in the back you know, preparing, you know, getting the dishes ready, putting out the table, you know, we all have this 
things we could do to build up his house. And it just there's a scripture, and it says in Ephesians 4, 11, 12, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service and to the building up of the body of um, Mashiach. So we are set apart to tear down and build back up. It's, it's, you know, it's building up his church. And I was, you know, thinking, it reminded me of um, um, Ezekiel, you know, the dry bones, right? I'm going to read right here. It's, uh, it says, so I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinew on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skins had covered them, but there was no breath in them. You know, so reading about this and studying it, it, it talks about how they're taking down the tent of meeting and the process of doing that. And we all have jobs to build up the kingdom, you know, and it's talking about how the bones came to life and it's the structure of the sanctuary and then the skins and so forth, the, the pillars and all that. We have a job to, to bring people to Yahweh. We have a job. We all have a part. We've all been set aside to do that. And it's talking about coming back, bringing the two houses back together and being restored. <laughs> we have a part in that. Yes. We, every single one of us, been set apart. Amen. And we are um, set apart to do that, just as all those people who were set apart to build up that sanctuary and take it back down, we, we are rebuilding it back up. We're, you know, there's people that see your um, YouTube channel and the services that, you know, those in the back doing the media that's a great way it. of looking. So, you know, I, I'd never seen it that way that there were people 2,700 years ago that played a part in dismantling the northern kingdom, taking that part of it down. But God has arisen a group of people today that will be the part, the ones to reestablish and reassemble that congregation, that northern kingdom coming back again. What a beautiful word that is to know that, you know, and I also heard you in what you said is, by sweeping and mopping the floor here, I'm worshiping God in service. So we're playing a part. It's not just dancing. It's not just hearing the word. It's all the things, including being part of the restoration of the whole house of Israel. Everything that's a part of it, God's whole plan, we are worshiping and serving God Almighty. And we have to take it seriously. Yes, word. The word Levite is related to the words... Levity and levitate, the core meaning of which is to make light. And in this context, it would imply that service to Yahweh, if you're doing carrying a burden in service to Yahweh, he will make it light. Good word. And when you look at this, uh, what they had to do to assemble and disassemble the tabernacle, it required a massive, coordinated, orchestrated team effort. <laughs> Can't without imagine. which the project would fail. Amazing. Yes. 
to clarify from earlier, I may have inadvertently said we are high priest. Yeshua is our high priest. Yes. We are priest. And looking at my notes, Moses and Aaron were on the east. Merari was on the north. Gershon was on the west. And Kohath was on the south where they camped. So, um, are you releasing your burdens? Special attention is paid to the prohibition of carrying any burden on the Shabbat, which included such activities as carrying harvested crops or packing a donkey. Among the more figurative uses of Massah is carrying a load of despair or hardship. We can only imagine Moshe's burdens of leadership as he asked God, Wherefore have I not found favor in your sight, that thou layest the burden of all these people upon me? And David writes of his sin, For mine iniquities are gone over mine head as a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me, as we sing it in the song that Gary writes. The chief metaphor in this word, however, is the idea of a burdensome message that must be delivered when we find in roughly the other half of its occurrences. The word occurs repeatedly in the prophets to introduce the message of judgment each is about to deliver. Lamenting the invasion of Jerusalem by the Persians, Isaiah speaks of a, the burden of the valley of vision. Elsewhere, he introduces various messages with the burden of Babylon, the burden of Moab, of Damascus, of Egypt, and others. Nahum likewise announces the burden of Nineveh. Other prophets use the same word in a slightly different and more significant way. Both Zechariah and Malachi spoke of the burden of the word of Yahuwah, and Habakkuk spoke of the burden which he did see. All this underscores the very real burden it is to the man of Elohim has, as he delivers God's message. Whether that message be one of exposing sin, proclaiming the gospel, teaching doctrine, refuting error, or any other message. The true preacher is a man who carries a heavy burden. In a day when we see fewer and fewer such men, the need is all the more acute. Pray for God to raise up more of them. Amen. So I want to talk a minute about our prophet portion, which is in Judges. And in Judges 13.2, it says, there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. When the messenger of Yahweh appeared to the woman, and here's that word, appeared, he said to her, Behold now, you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. In addition to the above, there is a theologically significant angel of Yahweh. This is a theophany theophonic manifestation, a divine being who embodies the person and authority of Elohim himself. There are about 70 references to the angel of Yahuwah, or the angel of Elohim, to Abraham, to Joshua, to Gideon, to Samson's parents, to Zechariah in a vision. Every occurrence of the phrase angel of Yahuwah or Elohim carries with it an important connotation. Since this, his appearance cons consistently initiates or advances a stage in Elohim's plan of salvation, whether in blessing or in judgment. So I want to share a brief moment about the book of the salt, the, 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 the book of the salt covenant. 
So I'm going to take just a minute to share with you what I read yesterday. All of us are familiar with the Ten Commandments given from Elohim on the two tablets or two tab tablet, ta tables or tablets of stone to the people at Mount Sinai. But not all of us are accustomed to think of these Ten Commandments as the ten separate clauses of a loving covenant between Elohim and his chosen people recorded on stone tablets for their permanent preservation. Yet these witnessing tablets are repeatedly called in the Bible the tablets of the covenant and the tables of testimony, not the tables of the commandments. While the chest or casket which contain them is called the Ark of the Covenant and the Ark of the Testimony, they are not called the Ark of the Commandments. There is obviously a worldwide difference between a loving covenant that binds two parties to each other in mutual affection and fidelity and a series of arbitrary commandments enjoined by a sovereign upon his subjects. Between a compact of union having its statement of promises on the one hand and of responsibilities on the other, and an instrument that inserts the rights of the ruler and defines the duties of the ruled. Are you getting the picture? In our estimate of the Decalogue, we have made too much of the law element and too little of the element of love. As a consequence, it has not been easy for us to see how it is that God's law is love. As Messiah says, everything is summed up in my law with love. And that love is the fulfilling of God's law. But the Ten Commandments are a simple record of God's loving covenant with His people. And they are not the arbitrary commands of God to His subjects. They indicate the in inevitable limits written or within which God and His people can be in a loving union rather than declare the limits of dutiful obedience on the part of those who would be God's faithful subjects. A close examination of the Decalogue will show that this is its nature and scope. Point being that they're making in looking at all about covenant, whether it's the blood covenant or the salt covenant, is that love, what God is giving, He's giving Himself, He's writing His nature down for His people to walk in His loving nature. God doesn't want to destroy. God doesn't want to bring judgment. God would rather bring the love and the blessings. Man is the one that chooses the other upon himself. God's will and desire is that we have the love. So if we're doing God's will and desire, we should be loving our brothers as we would love ourselves and as God loves us in his character. Yes. I think all this is tied up in the Torah. I think when the Almighty called Israel at Mount Sinai the covenant, it was God saying to them, I love you. Yes. I love you. And I don't want you to be lost. Yes. So therefore, it was a, the Torah is God's love. It's the law, but it's a love for man's benefit so that uh, when we die with through Yeshua, we'll go to heaven. Yep. Okay. Now, with this uh uh, way they talk now, there are been theologians doesn't want 
men to study the Torah. So, but anyway, I think the Torah is God's love to us. And it is. Uh, through him, through the Torah, we become what he wants us to be. Now, you could take the other extreme people and say, well, it is love, it's love, and, and there is no expectation of me. Wrong. That love that he shared and, sh and laid out in what he wrote down for us as instructions is the love, and those are the expectations of a loving husband wanting for his wife to walk in that agreement. So, yeah, you can't, you can't just be all lovey-lovey and not have any obligations or expectations. That would, be an, that would be a disastrous marriage. Okay. So, I want to finish what I want to say today. Okay, go ahead. I just wanted to say that, like, it's like, it's like his love, you know what I'm saying? His love and... Wait, what was that? I forgot to spy. Basically, like, it's like... Sorry, I'm so sorry. I just forgot what it's we okay. were talking about. It's all right. So, I want to finish the last bit I want to say centered around this word appeared. The messenger of Yahuwah appeared to the woman. The word appeared is this word ra'ah. The meaning is in fact derived from the passage in a nephel form of the verb to be seen or to appear. There are three different categories of appearing in the Tanakh. The first of these relates to inanimate objects of natural phenomena. For example, the mountaintops in Genesis 8.5, grass in Proverbs 27, mildew in articles of clothing in Leviticus 13, poles inserted into the rings at the sides of the Ark of the Covenant in 1 Kings. On the other hand, the appearance of other phenomena has a profound impact and carries great significance for those who witness it. The appearance of the rainbow in Genesis 9, for example, is of great comfort and significance to Noah and his surviving family. Now I'm going to cover several words in the Tanakh about appeared and several words in the New Testament in the Greek about appeared. I want you to get the meaning. The concept of appearing in the Tanakh can also relate to human beings. When human beings appear before God, for, exist, for instance, in Exodus 34, for example, it is laid down that all Israelite men must appear before Yahweh how many times? Three times a year at the tabernacle as part of the ritual obligation under the terms of the covenant or the contract. So there's obligations. They must appear, right? We must come before God at these uh, set times. A similar injunction is given to the entire nation in Deuteronomy 31. In related context, Yahweh required a mandatory sacrifice during the Feast of Unleavened Bread when he issued the command, no one shall appear before me empty-handed. Isaiah records an instance where the people appeared before Yahweh in worship was totally unacceptable on account of their hypocritical formalism and hardness of heart. In other words, they appeared so-called for worship, but their hearts were not in it. They were not doing it to him. They were doing it as just a rote obligation. Finally, there is the account of Hannah's devotion to Elohim in presenting her firstborn son, Samuel, to Yahweh in the tabernacle. 1 Samuel 1 records Hannah's words to her husband, and they literally read, referring to Samuel, I will take him so that he may appear before Yahweh, 
And in each of these instances, the concept of human beings appearing before Elohim is set squarely with the framework of worship. I'm going to come and appear before God on Shabbat to worship Him. It's about you and Him. It's not about her. It's about you worshiping Him. You're appearing before the Most High. So in two days, we're going to appear before Yahuwah on the day of Yom Kippur. We're going to appear before a merciful God. And we have to have this right. The final aspect of appearing in the Old Testament relates to Elohim himself. And it is here that we find the most theologically significant occurrence of the term Ra'ah. With this meaning, firstly, when it is said that Elohim, that he appears before human beings, the clear inference is that it is a theophanic vision. This is the experience of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moshe, the Levitical priests, Samuel, David, Solomon. In each case, the appearance of Elohim was for the specific purpose of revealing his will to selected key individuals for the advancement of his redemptive plans for his chosen people. Wow. And in other contexts, the appearance of Elohim signifies the anticipation of messianic fulfillment. And you see the references for it. So Elohim appears to his people in a cloud. But the purpose of most of these appearances is to bring judgment against them for one reason or another. Self-willed judgment because they chose something other than what he wanted. One of the most notable examples of this is the execution of Korah and his followers as a consequence of their rebellion against Moses, recorded in Numbers. In Leviticus 9, however, Yahweh appears to the assembled Israelites in the glory cloud as a sign that he had accepted the offerings that the priests had made on their behalf. Even here, however, one might argue that the appearance of Yahweh in the cloud is a sign of his judgment against their sin, symbolized in the fiery consumption of the sacrificial offering. So I want to propose this to you in understanding this idea of appearing before God. Those that do not appear before Yahweh on Yom Kippur will have a different appearance of Yahweh to them. So in other words, if I come to him in the way he asks, I'm going to have an appearance of him in the way that I'm wanting. Otherwise, Korah, he saw an appearance of an Elohim he did not want to see, one of judgment. And you know what? If the world doesn't come before him in repentance, they're going to get what? No name in the book. Name is expelled, and they are going to be out for good. And the key is, is we appear before him in that humility, that humbleness, that prostrate position of, of, of repenting and realizing we're done without him. We need him. We need him. So in addition... The appearance of Elohim is sometimes expressed through the phenomenon of the angel of Yahuwah. On five occasions, the verb ra'ah is used in this connection. Exodus 3 records the presence of the angel of Yahuwah before Moses in the burning bush. There is no doubt here that this being is divine figure, a genuine theophany. Then in the book of Judges, the angel of Yahuwah appears to Gideon and to the mother of Samson. In each case, Similar to other contexts discussed above, the appearance of the angel of Yahweh is for the express 
purpose of equipping. And the angel promises the recipients of the vision that Elohim will use them through his power to rescue Israel from their oppressors. Ooh-wee. So whatever the context in which human beings appear before Elohim, or vice versa, it is therefore clear that such a visitation or confrontation relates very closely to the plans and purposes of Elohim for you all. This is the case whether it involves worship, the blessing of salvation, or even judgment. So what does, I want to bring you, remind you of something. Since we need to realize that whatever we're getting, whatever we're getting, good or bad, is from whom? Now we remind you what Eli said when the messenger brought the bad news. Told him that because of your children and because you've allowed this, these things are going to happen to your kids. And what did Eli say? May Yahweh do what seems good to him. May he do what he feels is right. In other words, Eli's saying, I accept what's going to come to me because he judges righteously. And if he says that that's coming to me, I deserved it because I know he's righteous in dealing with me. And the point is, I don't want to hear those words from, to me. I don't ever want to know that I was so bad that I'm going to have this judgment against me that's going to wipe me or my family out. I don't want to know because I know that if, I, if it comes to me, I know that I truly was that person. And I have no one to blame but my own self for not correcting on the inside. And so what I want to do is I want to make sure I'm the person that receives the good thing, that I receive the, the appearance of the one who comes in mercy, blessing, and in love and life to me, bringing me that life that he wants to give me and not the judgment. That's what I want to see in his eyes. What do you want to see in his eyes? Do you want to see flames of fire? Or do you want to see love and mercy? Oh, Oh. So the other Hebrew word for this appearance is galah. And this verb means to uncover, to reveal one's nakedness, to reveal, to remove, or carry away. However, in its passive sense, as with ra'ah above, there are a number of instances where it means to appear in line with the sense of reveal. Goliath in these passages conveys the underlying connotation of revelation. For example, Genesis 35 records the appearance of Elohim to Jacob. In 1 Samuel 22, it indicates that Elohim had appeared to his people while they were in Egypt. Isaiah predicts that the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed. It will one day appear to the people of Israel. Now, I want to highlight that because one day in 20. 20 or 2018 or 27, whenever it was that you came to Torah, God was going to reveal and appear to his people of Israel his nature and character in its entirety. And he's going to unfold your eyes. The scales are going to fall off. And you're going to see this loving God has plans for you. That you're part of a bigger family. That you're not isolated, but you have purpose in his kingdom. From a negative perspective, there are several powerful metaphorical expressions of Israel's sins. 
which are described as being laid bare or exposed. That is, they appear in the sight of God. Oh, Father, I pray that we don't have our sin laid bare in front of you. But the Father, that you, through your mercy and grace, and through us approaching you right, it's covered over and it's not seen. May it be blotted out and that your eyes don't behold it. Father, may it be that none of the sins of my brothers and sisters ever appear before your eyes that you see it, that it invokes judgment. But that when you look upon us, it's covered and the blood of Messiah is over it and you only see love and you only see life and the life and the love of Messiah is what is over us and in us and that's all that you see. Wow. That's what I want him to see in me. The life of Messiah. So may our sins be blotted out and not exposed. I'm going to skip a couple of these Greek ones. I want to get to something very important for you. I have a few Greek ones here. And so this Greek word, phenaru, this verb occurs about 60 times with the consistent meanings of reveal, cause to appear, the passive sense to be revealed is found in a number of places, occurring with references to His work in the lives of human beings. The righteousness of God in you. The love of God in you. Eternal life of God's Word in you. The life of Messiah in the bodies and the lives of believers. And the mystery of Messiah and the Gospel communicated to the Holy Ones in His kingdom. The revelation of Messiah to Israel is indicated in John 1.31 and to the world at large at the end of the age. The act of meaning to reveal in the sense of cause to appear is found in relation to Messiah's glory during his earthly ministry. John affirms that Messiah reveals God's name to God's people. Have you had his name revealed to you? Hallelujah. Romans 1.19 declares that Elohim reveals himself to humankind and the sense of make clear, plain, is also evident in the use of this term. God wants to make it clear to you. He wants to make it plain to you what he's expecting of you. Nothing clouded, shrouded in mystery or, or a gray areas. He wants you to know that this is my covenant and this is what I expect you to do as my bride. As Revelation says, she is clothed with the fine linen garments. It's the righteousness of God. It's His Word and His commands. It's that love of Him that is now upon you. His life. So we're going to worship. And I would rather that you stand and worship rather than sit. So if you'd stand with me. The specific sense of appear is noted in the context of risen Messiah, showing himself to his disciples prior to his ascension to heaven. The phenomenon of becoming visible in the glare of light is indicated in Ephesians 5. All believers are set to appear before the judgment seat of Messiah as indicated in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For it says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Messiah so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body 
according to what he has done, whether it was good or bad. So we're going to sing a song that I trust will prepare our hearts for what is coming in two days on Yom Kippur. So please worship Yahweh in this song. Appear before him in a heartfelt worship. And at the end of the song, continue to glorify his name. Polly and I and Perry will teach you a new dance step to this song at Sukkot. If you're joining us with us at the trolley farm that we're going to enjoy. And so I want to make sure I have this. I've already told Ward that I'm playing this, so everything should be good. I want to be sure. I don't want it to hit play and nothing is there. It's connected. And so, please sing this with me. And let it out. Worship God. Cry to Him. He wants to appear before you in two days, and He wants you to appear before Him. Let's prepare ourselves now, two days out. Remember, you were brought forth in iniquity. mother conceived you but he's got a plan behold I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me behold you delight in the truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart
you and praise your mighty one of Israel because you are gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. You are the one who is merciful and gracious to your people. Father, we are thankful that you're patient. We're thankful that you're slow to anger. We're thankful that you give us time to repent. We're thankful that you don't, don't just snap your finger and it's all over in an instant. But you give us forewarning, Father. You tell us that you're coming. You tell us that judgment is on its way. You, give, you send prophets to tell your people to repent and turn. And you would relent from the calamity that's coming. Oh, Father, you are so awesome. You teach us and show us who you are. And I can trust that that's who you are forever. You don't change. That's who you are for all time to come. And I glorify you and praise you that you're the God that I serve and not these other false gods that, that, are, that they are wicked and they, are, they rule in oppression over people. They are ones who do not walk in your ways. But you are true and righteous in all that you do. And you keep promise to a thousand generations. And we glorify you and praise you, mighty one of Israel. 
Thank you, Father. We're ready. Well, Father, we want to prepare our hearts for Yom Kippur. We want to be ready for coming before you and appear before you in two days. We, we want to see your appearance of mercy. We want to see your appearance of forgiveness. We thank you, Father, for your mercy. We glorify you and praise you in Master Yahushua's name. Amen. Now we get to say, Shabbat Shalom! My daughter, Rekiah, choreographed the steps to that song that we're going to teach you to coach. So thank you, Rekiah, for doing the steps. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, everyone, for joining us online. Thank you all. Have a blessed rest of your day. Shabbat Shalom.